Welcome to the fourth episode of Coronavirus The Truth with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. We are also the hosts of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, in your career as a physician, an educator at Stanford University, and as CEO at Kaiser Permanente, you've helped lead our country through epidemics like SARS, MERS, swine flu, and even Ebola. Uh, we began this podcast because you had so many people reaching out to you for honest, fact-based information about the current COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in this episode, we're going to cover a few different topics and stories in the news, as well as addressing some common conceptions around how to keep safe from the virus. Before we do, Robbie, a lot of news and information has emerged since our last episode. Can you start us off with some of the most important recent updates and what is the current state of the pandemic in different parts of country? Is this the week we peak? Jeremy, I fear the nation remains in denial about many aspects of this virus, despite the constant conversation and media coverage. Many people I speak with and nearly all of the news outlets describe this as a back and forth battle with an implication that we will turn the tide, that we'll win the war, that we'll defeat COVID-19. These phrases may make sense in a traditional war with a human enemy, but they are non sequiturs when your enemy is a virus. Let's begin with the facts. The coronavirus will remain in our country until one of three things happen. First, we have a vaccine that provides immunity to all Americans. At that point, the virus will either have to mutate, similar to what happens with influenza, in which case it becomes an annual occurrence, or it will disappear, similar to many of the past childhood scourges. Of course, it doesn't really completely disappear as we've seen with measles, but what we see is very few infections and they can be identified, the individuals and the contacts isolated and the virus controlled. The problem, a effective vaccine is at least a year away. The second way is that we find a medication that is efficacious in treating patients. But despite lots of conversations around the malaria drug chloroquine and human plasma, there's little evidence that these effective treatments will be available anytime soon. And that leaves the third solution, which is herd immunity. Rather than immunity coming from a vaccine, it comes from a sufficient number of people having had the disease and recovering. So the virus can't find a host to infect, to replicate in, and then spread. The percent of the population needed for herd immunity is dependent upon how easy the virus spreads. As we said in last week's podcast, the R naught is how many people a given individual with the virus will infect. When that number is less than one, 
the virus slowly diminishes because each week there are fewer and fewer people who are infected. For a virus with an R0 like measles of 12 to 18, it requires 95% of the population to have herd immunity. For COVID-19 with an R0 of between two and three, it's somewhere around half to two thirds of the population. What I fear, Jeremy, is that right now people are confusing the value of social distancing, which is essential to avoid overwhelming our facilities with a belief that it will lead to the end of the pandemic, that it will lead to eliminating the virus. It won't do that. As a result of slow responses to this virus, our hospitals today are stretched and people who require inpatient care, admission to a critical care facility, and a ventilator to breathe in places like New York are facing the possibility that these facilities won't exist. Social distancing, shelter in place, and self-quarantine are powerful ways to flatten the curve. That's to reduce the size of the spike in numbers that otherwise would happen. By doing so, you reduce the demand at any given time. The inpatient facilities then have the capacity to be able to provide the care. And then with intense focus on increasing the amount of protective equipment and the number of ventilators, you're able to take care of a larger percent of the population at any given time. But it doesn't change the total number of people who will become infected over time. And as a consequence, the total number of people who will die, and I want to use this phrase, from the virus. Not dying because they could not get the care that otherwise would have helped prolong their life and allowed them potentially to recover, but from the virus itself. The deaths from coronavirus will come from two sources. They will come from the virus itself or they will come from our inability to take care of the number of people who have it at any time. Both are tragic, but the fact of people dying simply because we did not have the equipment required to save their lives or the medication, that I would label as doubly tragic. I'm increasingly being asked about a second or third wave People remember that this happened in other viral epidemics. When it comes to coronavirus, a second wave is inevitable when social distancing is diminished, assuming that there is no vaccine available at that time. It's really not a second wave, Jeremy. It's just a second spike from the same virus, from the same biology that existed before. We want this second wave to be flatter than the first so as to avoid overwhelming our hospitals. We also want in the second wave to protect those who are most vulnerable, the, the elderly, those with multiple chronic diseases, people with lung disease in particular. And we want to make sure that the protective equipment and respirators and ventilators are in place to take care of the people who have the virus and require it. 
But I believe that there will be far, far more deaths from the virus than Americans understand today. And let me explain why. Every year, the flu kills about 40,000 people. That's every year. There's no reason to believe that COVID-19 is less lethal than influenza. As a result, the numbers of deaths will continue to rise steeply, not because we're losing the war, but simply because of the lethality of the virus and the fact that as physicians, we have no effective treatment to destroy it, unlike in a bacterium. The influenza virus has a mortality around 0.1%. For COVID-19, the mortality is based upon age and associated factors, whether you have diabetes, whether you're a smoker. But overall, it's at least 0.25% and more likely 0.5%. That's two and a half to five times more lethal than influenza. Far less, by the way, than Ebola, which is 70%. But it does mean that somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people will die. And although every one of those deaths is a tragedy, the American populace should not be panicking and newspapers should not be having headlines implying that we are losing. Right now, we are doing well at avoiding what is the biggest risk which is overwhelming our hospitals and having additional deaths on top of those that come from COVID-19 because of our inability to provide the care to people who need it. So to get back to your question, many people will die this week. Not because we're losing the war, but because we didn't socially distance three to four weeks ago. At that time, a large number of people were infected, probably two to four times more than the week before. And 0.5% of the large number is tens of thousands of deaths that will occur. My best guess is we'll see a doubling over the next week and possibly a doubling again in the week to come. It will depend upon the area that one is looking at. New York is at the front of the curve now. Other cities are only in the increasing exponential part of the curve Reduce social distancing before there's a vaccine. And remember, that's 12 to 18 months. And people will die from the disease. But they will die from the disease whether we socially distance or not, unless we're willing to wait that full year to year and a half. Robbie, you know, things are getting bad. And not just in terms of the death rates and how swamped some of the hospitals are. Uh, But the repercussions of how our society is responding to fight the virus are increasing in severity, too. Suicide hotline usage is spiking. Uh, New York is preparing for massive civil unrest. And unemployment is skyrocketing. People still have not gotten their checks in the mail yet, either. Robbie, the president himself, as well as many others, have said that we cannot make the cure worse than the disease. Have we made the cure worse than the disease already? Uh, This is going to get a lot worse as the disease numbers continue to rise. This feels like a lose-lose situation, but we cannot ignore those issues. Uh, I'm curious if you have any ideas on how to handle uh, the side effects of the pandemic and how we're fighting it uh, while still flattening the curve. 
Jeremy, although many people use the war analogy, there are major differences with this enemy than in human-to-human battles. The first is that the virus can't surrender from a biological perspective, not because it wants to or doesn't, it doesn't think, but biologically it can't. Either it has to be completely eliminated by finding everyone with the disease and quarantining them until they're no longer contagious, as we've done with smallpox, or it will flare up, assuming there are enough individuals who are not yet immune, either from having had the disease or having had a vaccine against it. The second difference is that the enemy only has one strategy, and that is to land on the linings of the noses or mouths of people, penetrate the cells, force the cell to make thousands of copies of the virus, break free and land on the next victim. We don't have to keep our strategy quiet. The virus doesn't care. It won't listen. It can't listen. And it doesn't change or can't change tactics. What we need in the United States is a clear, definitive plan. And that plan needs to take into account all of the factors you're describing. Like you, I don't believe our nation can stay socially distanced for 12 to 18 months without having consequences for people that will be too great psychologically, socially, economically. The consequences for the lives and the health of Americans, I do not believe can tolerate 12 to 18 months. The key part is to understand why we're doing social distancing now. It is to avoid that spike that would overwhelm the hospitals. And that we need to continue to do until the number of cases is low enough that it will not overwhelm the capacity or, and in addition, we build up the capacity of the facilities. The biology is clear. The virus will persist until there's either a vaccine too far away, some miracle, a treatment that cures it, a viral mutation makes it less lethal, a reduction in contagiousness due to the heat. There's a whole bunch of factors, but so far they look like long shots. And finally, it's herd immunity. The question is, how long will we wait to relieve the restrictions around social distancing, not because the hospitals will get overwhelmed. We must do that. But because we want to allow herd immunity to develop. Now, let me be clear. There is no right answer. This is an ethical, a moral, a very complex calculus. However, leaving it vague, I believe, is definitely the wrong answer. Because when you do that, you create ever greater anxiety, fear, and panic. So on today's coronavirus, the truth, I'd like to lay out a path forward with a time frame. I can guarantee that critics from all sides will quabble with the details. But the fundamental belief is that unless we're willing to wait 12 to 18 months for that vaccine to arrive, we need for the American populace, a clear, specific game plan, and we do not have it today. 
First, for the next six to eight weeks, we need intense social distancing to continue. As we said, that's to avoid the overwhelming of the facilities. And during that time, the president needs to drive production of protective equipment, protective equipment for doctors, nurses, and all hospital staff to have the ventilators built and any supplies or medications that may be required that could become insufficient in quantity need to be produced. He has that power and needs to invoke it. As a doctor wrote on social media yesterday, we'd never send a soldier into battle wearing only a bathing suit. We can't send our healthcare workers into the battle that exists without the protective equipment required. We can do it. If this is a time of war, we must do it, and the president must invoke those powers. Second, I believe we need to set a specific date, maybe May 15th or May 31st. We can call it D-Day for deciding day. We must make sure on that date we have the equipment required in our hospitals to protect our people and to treat our patients. We need at that moment to assess the results of the clinical trials that are in place now around various medications and plasma. We should know by then whether these are effective. We can see whether the warmer weather has impacted the ease of spread of this virus. And certainly if relief is only one month away, we should wait for that to occur. But my prediction is And by that, I mean we don't know, but my best guess is that we'll find ourselves at that point without any of these miracle cures available. And I believe at that point, on a definitive date, based upon the objective information that has been predetermined to be the deciding factors, we need to lower the amount of social isolation at a rate that will not overwhelm our facilities. I want to emphasize this one more time. If you believe that social isolation is going to reduce the consequences of the virus, you might think that that should be continued. But if you believe that over time, as people become infected, the mortality will be exactly the same, then what you want to do is you want to ease it up. Having said that, I want to make the point that those at greatest risk of dying, the elderly, those with multiple chronic disease, people with lung disease, need to stay socially distanced. They need to get the support from our nation around the housing, food, and economic assistance required to allow them, because if not, they are the ones who will get infected and will die from this virus at a much, much higher rate than that 0.5%. We have to, during that time, avoid massive arenas. The possibility of spreading the virus to 50 or 100,000 people who then go home and spend it to another five or 10 people each is not a risk we can take. But the measure of how fast to ease the restrictions and open the valve should be based upon herd immunity. And as such, we need broad testing in a variety of geographic areas for the antibodies. Now, there's still much we need to understand about the immunity to this virus. But the most likely situation is that having recovered from the virus, our bodies will be protected at least for a certain amount of time. 
And so the herd immunity should be the driving factor to how fast we can go. When that herd immunity is low, you've got to open that valve very, very slowly. As the number of people who are immune to it rise, you can progressively ease your restrictions because the chances of that virus having landed on a susceptible victim has become diminished. And so we would increasingly or more rapidly return to normal, continuing to protect those at the greatest risk until a vaccine is available or there is an effective treatment that has been proven that would allow them to recover should they become ill. The two measures therefore become hospital capacity against demand and the percent of the population with immunity. The total process will still take 12 to 18 months, but the percentage of people having to social distance during that time will become progressively less. We will win this battle when a vaccine is available, but not before then, but we need to make sure that we protect the health of Americans from the other aspects, from the psychological, from the interpersonal, and from the economic. One of the things we're hearing now is that everyone should be wearing a mask. Um, should we be, and are the homemade or surgical masks any good? Um, what's the difference between the N95s we hear about in the news and on TV so much and uh, the surgical mask, and especially in terms of like not for people on the front lines, just your average everyday person? One of the challenges that happen with these type of viral pandemics, one of the problems that happen when there is growing anxiety, fear, particularly when there's prolonged restrictions without an end in sight, is that people start to focus on the exceptions and not the common rules. So masks are not 100% effective but we should understand what they do. And to do that, you need to look at how is the virus transmitted. This virus appears to be transmitted in one of three ways. The first is called droplets. You sneeze or you cough, and coming out of your mouth and nose is a glob of liquid that includes virus. And when that lands on the nose or the mouth of another person, the virus can now invade the cells and infect the second individual. The second is aerosol. This is when you breathe out and the virus is sent out into the atmosphere. It's not attached to these goblets of liquid but it's part of the air surrounding you. And then finally, an individual touches their nose or mouth, touches an object like a doorknob, someone else touches the same doorknob and then touches their nose or mouth and basically self-inoculates. So once you understand these three parts, now you have to divide the use of masks into protecting yourself and protecting others. The masks, even the most homemade 
two layer masks seem relatively effective at protecting others against droplets. You sneeze or you cough into the two layer cloth fabric. The liquid gets trapped because these are large globules and the virus can't escape. So certainly anyone with symptoms should be wearing this mask to protect others. And if we wanted to maximally reduce spread, and that's essential in a community whose hospitals risk being overwhelmed, then everyone should have masks on because that's the best way to do it. At the same time, they also would protect someone who is sneezed or coughed at because the mask that they're wearing would avoid that globule of liquid and virus to penetrate inside and potentially infect them through their nasal mucosa and oral mucosa. What these homemade masks don't do and what the N95 does is create a full seal so that the aerosol doesn't either get out or get in, meaning the air doesn't get out or get in. The N95 forces all of the air to come in through very small holes that will filter out most of the virus, either protecting others from the individual infected or protecting those from receiving it. Finally, this way of transmission through particularly metallic objects or hard objects, hard plastic, of having a virus that can live on that surface after it is touched by someone who's infected, who's previously touched their nose and mouth, the masks are actually quite controversial because there's one level that says by having our face covered, we're going to not touch our nose and mouth. And most people do that quite often without realizing it is happening. And others point out the fact that people often then reach under the mask and obviously at that point, take the virus directly to their nose and mouth. And it's why hand washing and surface cleaning become so vital. A question I received last week was about the use of masks in other countries versus the United States. And I want to point out the fact that this is a cultural phenomenon. In places like Asia that have been wearing masks frequently, some because of a variety of pandemics and some just culturally that is acceptable. People look to the mask. And in fact, in some places of Scandinavia, they're actually seeing the mask as being an example of social commitment to protect the health of others. One of the big issues in the United States is we tend to associate masks with negative. We associate it with criminals and bank robbers and other individuals who are trying to hide something. And so I think that one of the challenges we're going to have is an educational one where people need to understand that the value of the mask is to protect others. And that creates a possible problem because people are afraid to indicate that they are sick. So you need more universal masking so that everyone does that, added on to the fact that we know that this virus can be communicated by people who are not yet showing symptoms. So certainly in those areas of high density, places like New York today, 
it would seem most reasonable from a scientific and biological basis that everyone should be wearing masks. Can you explain the CARES bill for our listeners? The CARES bill is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. As we said in last week's podcast, this is not a stimulus bill. That will have to come later from Congress. This is a bill to allow individuals and small businesses to weather the storm, to allow them to continue to maintain their houses, to feed their families, to keep their employees on the payroll during this transition and until we're able to diminish the restrictions on social distancing and allow the interactions and the economy to recover. It has four key parts, but remember, it's an 800-page bill, so this is far from a comprehensive look. The first is stimulus checks for individuals. These will be $1,200 for individuals, $2,400 for couples who are married and filed jointly. They will be available to people earning on a gross income basis less than $75,000 a year based on the 2019 tax return. The size of the rebate will be phased out as incomes move higher. And I believe that they end totally around $100,000 for individuals and $200,000 for families. Second, relative to students, there's going to be the ability to suspend the interest payments at least until September 30th of 2020 and the ability of employers to help support student loan payments during this transition period. Third, expansion of unemployment benefits. This will increase the amount of unemployment insurance that is paid to individuals by an additional $600 per week. You may know that unemployment insurance is significantly less than compensation it was passed that way by Congress so as to be less than compensation. This brings the dollars paid from many individuals back up to that level to allow them to maintain their previous lifestyle. Second, it extends the time period by an additional 13 weeks. As we've said, this virus is not going away in two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks, so people need longer protection. And it extends unemployment benefits to groups not typically covered, as an example, Uber or Lyft drivers. Finally, it provides to small businesses loans, small business or employer, employers of fewer than 500 employees, and they can borrow up to 2.5 times their average monthly payroll costs, capped at $10 million dollars. And assuming that they use this money to maintain the income of their employees, then the loans will be forgiven across time. This Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act will be vital for individuals and families. 
Everyone saw the significant increase in unemployment last month, and we're going to see it continue to rise in the months to come until we're able to diminish the expectations around social distancing. As we've said, that will not happen probably for somewhere between one and two months. Robbie, unfortunately, we've been given a somber warning about this and next week from scientists and the president's team. Uh, what can we expect? Will this be the week New York peaks? What will that look like? Another thing, uh, I'm in Iowa, and I have read that places like Iowa will likely peak much later. Um, and then, you know, what does peaking look like in New York versus peaking in Iowa or Nebraska or something like that, where the majority of the population is spread out much further? Uh, maybe that's an additional layer of protection since we're not living on top of each other as much like people in New York. But um, how will this affect uh, rural health and critical access hospitals that don't have the resources of some of these major cities? Jeremy, on our podcast, Coronavirus, The Truth, we stay focused on the facts. So let me start with the science around the question you're posing. We've already said that viruses increase in an exponential rate. Two become four, four to eight, eight to 16. We used the analogy last time with the lily pond, where you see a lily pond that is doubling, each plant doubling every day. It takes 50 days to cover the lily pond. On the 49th day, only half of the lily pond is there. On the 48th, only a quarter. On the 43rd or 44th, only 1%. That's what peaking means when the lily pond becomes completely covered. Where does peaking end? Peaking ends, assuming there's no vaccine, assuming there's no way to find everyone with disease and quarantine them, it ends with herd immunity. I wish there was a different answer to that question. So the variation by geography reflects two factors. When did that community get exposed to the virus? And what is the degree of social interaction, by which I mean the number of people you come in close contact with every day? The places like New York and California to some extent have seen a tremendous increase in the numbers because that is where the virus appeared to come, actually first in Seattle, where we've seen the peak occurring. Now we're seeing in New York, California will be soon after. Every city in the United States will see a peak at some point. The second issue around timing is the number of contacts that happen. As we pointed out in the last podcast, we're seeing a peak happening right now in Louisiana, why is that? Because the Mardi Gras brought people even closer together over a very small amount of time. And it's why I said earlier that we need to be doing a lot of measuring of two factors. How prevalent is the virus and how immune is the population? If the virus is very prevalent, we're going to see a peak soon in the future. We have to make sure we have the inpatient resources to take care of the patients 
who will get sick from the virus and require a critical care unit or a ventilator. And we need to make sure we have the protective equipment for the people who will take care of them, the doctors, the nurses, and the respiratory therapists. For places that are very rural with few contacts, the virus is not likely to have a rapid peak and conceivably could even die out in those areas in a moderately short amount of time. The big risk is going to be in the cities themselves. And as we said, as soon as we take off the gloves, as soon as we allow social distancing to happen, we know that the incidence of the infection is going to grow. And what we need to do is not to think that by keeping social distancing, we can prevent infections from happening forever. That's going to be the vaccine. But to allow that valve to slowly open in a way that we can return more towards normal, but do so in a way that we never exceed the local hospital capacity and protect those most vulnerable, the elderly, those with multiple chronic diseases, and those with lung disease, as an example, smokers and patients with diabetes. Jeremy, you are a businessman in the heartland of the United States. You have some employees. You interact with many others who are also small business people. You do not want to risk your life, those of your loved ones, or those in the community. And at the same time, you're seeing the impact of the complete shutdown of the American economy on people. Do you have a number? How long you think this can persist before we start to see severe damage to individuals psychologically, interpersonally, and I'll say long-term bankruptcy that they will never recover from if the degree of social distancing is maintained for 12 to 18 months? To be blunt, I think that, you know, based on people I'm talking to, especially people outside of healthcare who might not have as much of an understanding of the, uh, the virology and exponential growth, or even, you know, to what we talked about before of, you know, bending the curve and, and, and thinking that staying inside will actually defeat the disease in a month. I think that, uh, I cannot imagine people, your average everyday person, tolerating this staying inside for more than I would say even the end of April. And the reason I say that is because so many people whose livelihoods is owning a restaurant or owning a bar or even small businesses that rely on brick and mortar or other brick and mortar businesses for that matter, that you know, even though if a restaurant can stay open, takeout orders or delivery is not enough to sustain their business when they don't get the kind of margin from that that they would from alcohol sales or things like that. That being said, I just, people are getting depressed. I know for a fact I'm getting stir crazy. And I think, you know, like I said, I think the majority of Americans who are of that middle and lower middle class and or who people whose people livelihoods rely on a brick and mortar type business i don't i don't think we can last much longer than a month to be honest 
We are in a war, and I think in wartime, people make sacrifices beyond that which they believe they can do. My perspective is that a month will not be enough because if we do that, we will overwhelm our healthcare facilities and the psychological damage created by that experience of watching people die unnecessarily, not from the virus, but from our lack of ability to provide care will be so great on the individual's families, their loved ones, the caregivers, I don't think a month is going to be the amount of sacrifice we have to do. We've got to find a way as a country to do better than that. But I would concur with you that it's somewhere out there, let's say two months or maybe three, if we know for sure it's coming. In this week's podcast, my view is that the greatest problem we have right now is this uncertainty this growing anxiety, the sense that it may never end. And I would hope that very soon we will have a specific plan with a date, a D-day to decide with specific measures that we're going to be using to determine whether this will be over on its own in a month or whether we need a different strategy to get us to the vaccine. And then finally, we need to have a scientific way to slowly and progressively, increasingly over time, open the faucet to allow more individuals to have the kinds of social interactions that we know are going to increase the number of cases, but do so in ways that prevent and protect those at greatest risk, those who are most likely to die. It's not a perfect solution but it is one that I believe can happen. And I'm hoping that if our nation can embrace it, that we will get through to the ultimate victory over this virus. That will be a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. And that in the transition, the amount of damage that is done will be less than it otherwise would have been. And that rather than this becoming a long-term post-traumatic psychological set of issues, where this becomes an eternal problem with the economics, not just of the, of the country, but of the small businesses and the individuals and the families. I think there will be a moment when the cure will be worse than the disease. We're not there now. We have to protect the ability of our communities to provide that care. New York is going to have a terrible week or two. Sitting back behind that will be New Orleans and it will be San Francisco and it will be Detroit. And Iowa City, where you're located right now, will have its own peak at some particular point. But once we can get past that peak, which will be no more than six to eight weeks, I believe we need to have a clear, definitive, well-understood plan that we follow because that will get the confidence of the nation in our future, a confidence that I believe should be there, an optimism we've had in times of war and we can have once again when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I think this has been a really good conversation for our listeners. I agree. Thank you very much, Robbie. 
As a reminder to our listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Share it with your friends and family. To submit a question, comment, or anything like that to the hosts, visit the Contact Us page on our website, or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you so much, and have a great day.